Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Andrew C. McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, contributing editor at National Review Online, Fox News contributor, author of Ball of Collusion. Uh, in for Jim Garrity today. Jim is at the National Rifle Association annual meeting in Houston, uh, which we will, I'm sure, get a full report on on Tuesday's edition. Jim and I will have a special Memorial Day edition on Monday, so don't miss that either. But uh, we have plenty of fodder today, Andy. Let's start with a story that should have been big news, really big news, a couple of weeks before the election, last not last year, but in 2020. Uh, but the media and big tech did a bang-up job of uh, making sure that any mention of it was uh, treated as a flat-out conspiracy theory, and that, of course, is the Hunter Biden laptop. Now, there's not much good on the uh, Hunter Biden laptop, but as Jim and I are wont to say, especially when we're uh, scrambling for a good martini, hey, the fact that the truth is coming out is good, right? Uh, So that's where we are. The Washington Examiner has done a four-part series on the Hunter Biden laptop, and there's uh, all sorts of uh, revelations here. Perhaps the most significant, which we already knew, is that the laptop is 100% authentic, Uh, according to a forensic examination. So, uh, Andy, uh, I'm sure that didn't shock anyone. I think most of us knew that at this point. But what else sticks out to you from this investigative reporting at The Examiner? Well, Greg, I'm really glad that they did this and drew more attention to it. And I'm glad that they subjected it to a thoroughgoing forensic examination. I, I think you're quite right that that was not really in doubt at this point. Uh, As I pointed out at the time, it's not really the work of Sisyphus to to get a document or or an item uh, authenticated for purposes of use in court. Um, Sometimes you hear these guys talk like, oh, you know, there's no way that that ever could have, you know, it's all false. There's no way it could ever have been um, uh, considered as evidence. And actually, the you know, the rules of evidence in in courtrooms um, are really designed to allow relevant evidence to be put in front of the jury. And as the lawyers say, uh, any questions about uh, its its provenance tend to go to weight, not admissibility. That is, you let the jury see the item, and then if you have reasons to attack it or su- suggest that it's suspect, um, you can bring those up. So it seemed to me at the time that there were so many indicia of, of Hunter's ownership of what we were seeing day after day in the New York Post, that it was clear that this thing was authentic, that the laptop information was authentic. It was, I thought, reprehensible for these former uh, intelligence officials to politicize their credential as former uh, intelligence officials in order to cast doubt on that and suggest that it was Russian disinformation when there was no indication at all that this was Russian disinformation. And my favorite part of this at the time was when the story came out that Hunter had arranged for one of his uh, Burisma Ukrainian business partners to meet with then Vice President Biden uh, in Washington. Uh, And there was a clear email where the guy thanked Hunter for the time with Joe Biden. Uh, When they asked Joe Biden's campaign about that incident, um, the reaction from the campaign was, well, we'll have to check the calendar to see 
if there's any such meeting. So it struck me at the time that they weren't saying, are you kidding me? That's bogus. That's ridiculous. Nothing like that ever happened. They said, well, we'll have to check the calendar. So, you know, they never came out in any kind of a full-throated way and denied this. And Hunter at some point even said, well, that absolutely could be my stuff as if he, as if he's actually uh, not sure. So I'm glad the Washington examiner uh, did this investigation so that we can put that to rest. It was obvious enough that it was his, but now we have a forensic uh, examination that would would hold up in any courtroom in America to show that uh, that this thing is real. And, you know, it, there's some interesting new information that's come out of it. One thing is that uh, Hunter appears to have been involved in uh, potentially crimes of hacking and monitoring phone calls. Now, uh, this seems to be in the context of his relationship with his sister-in-law, Hallie, and that's all a kind of an excruciatingly ugly uh, situation for people to feel like they're prying into. But, you know, again, these are these are crimes potentially that the prosecutors uh, have to look at. And, you know, if he's committing that kind of a violation in connection with uh, with Hallie Biden, it's not inconceivable that, you know, there's other uh, indications of that kind of uh, behavior. So obviously that's something they need to look at. That's something new in the way of uh, potential criminal activity that we hadn't heard about before. Another interesting thing that uh, came up is that uh, apparently Hunter had software for burner phones. So there's been some question uh, with respect to the laptops about why there aren't a lot of conversations on there. There's tons of conversation on there, but there's gaps in the conversation. And it doesn't seem to be a conversation about the sort of stuff that Hunter has elsewhere said he was involved in, like, for example, drug use. Um, and there seem to be gaps in uh, the communications with uh, overseas business partners. It looks like he had software for a burner phone so that you could basically, this is software you can load onto your computer and it functions like a burner phone where, you know, you basically use it once and get rid of it and it can't be traced, which is why um, people who are involved in shady stuff like burner phones. So uh, I think that aspect of it is, is interesting. And then I think finally today's installment uh, includes my favorite part of the Hunter story, which I can't believe has not gotten more attention, which is Hunter's connection to this Chinese outfit, CEFC, which was effectively an arm of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. We all know now that he made millions of dollars off this, even though uh, Joe Biden said that he never made any money off the Chinese. Joe Biden also said that he never discussed his business dealings with Hunter. This is the transaction where uh, they have a document that says 10% of it was being held for the big guy and a witness, Tony Bobolinsky, who says that the big guy was Joe Biden, with whom he had two face to face meetings about this venture. But I but I've always thought the most interesting part of that, Greg, is that Hunter was retained as a lawyer by his main partner at CEFC to uh, represent yet another guy, a guy by the name of Patrick Ho, uh, who was also an executive at CEFC. Hunter was retained for a million dollars to represent him as a lawyer under circumstances where it looks like the gig was to find out what was going on in the way of investigations by 
the U.S. government into this guy. And the reason I think that's interesting is Patrick Ho was ultimately prosecuted by the Justice Department for foreign corrupt practices. And in the course of that prosecution, the Justice Department revealed that CEFC and this guy Patrick Ho were the subject of FISA national security surveillance. And I point that out because just a little while after the government disclosed that in court, Hunter's main partner, who's a guy named Yi, uh, is arrested in China, and he's never been heard from again. And then the Chinese let the CEFC, which they had turned into a multi-billion uh, dollar uh, multinational conglomerate, they just let that thing die. It went bankrupt. So I, I just think, you know, that's something that cries out to be looked into, and it's only one facet of what went on here. But the Biden family made about $6 million just off CEFC alone. Well, one thing I have noticed, uh, and I'm sure you have too, Andy, in the past couple of months is, first of all, the New York Times kind of surreptitiously admitted that the uh, contents of the laptop were real. And as far as I can tell, both CBS and NBC have done repeated stories on this. So is it just a matter of, well... The election's over, so we can come clean on this, and maybe the, it does matter a little bit. Um, others are are wondering whether they think this is eventually going to blow up on the president himself, and so they might as well get ahead of it. What's what's your take on that? My take on it, Greg, is that uh, this is a kind of a pattern with what I call the media Democrat complex. They'll report things, but they'll report them like with the federal with the presidential election four years out, or <laughs> or with the uh, midterm elections two years out. You know, because they want to be able to say that they reported them. Um, I remember with when the Times did their story a couple of months ago um, about this for the first time, where they said that they had it had uh, been made known to them that uh, some of these Hunter Biden laptop emails might actually be authentic and real, um, and they had been confirmed by the New York Times. And I I, I pointed out to people at the time that. Um, the story in the Times, if I'm remembering this right, was on like page A19 in the paper. Like you would have to wade really deep into the New York Times. And then if you looked at the story about the laptop, I think it was in paragraph 36 of the story. when <laughs> They acknowledged that the laptop was a problem for Hunter. So I just think, it, you know, it's very interesting that they've now finally decided that this is OK to cover, uh, but they're 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 kind of creeping up to it. They're not really um, covering it in a full throated way. They're covering it in a kind of uh, check the box. We really we did finally cover this kind of way. And and I'm concerned, Greg, that what ultimately is going to happen here is they're going to kind of drag this out, and then the case will just disappear. Um, you know, Hunter's the reporting has been that. Um, Hunter was under investigation for a variety of things, including the possibility of a foreign agent registration violation. Anyone who does uh, business on behalf of an overseas principal has to register with the Justice Department as a foreign agent. It's a requirement of federal law, but they don't enforce it criminally very often. Uh, and that seems to have been the heart of the Hunter investigation besides what he calls his tax matter. Um, it's basically looking at uh, his foreign business transactions, seeing if he should have registered as a government agent. 
And the theory, this is the same theory under which in the Mueller investigation, they investigated Paul Manafort, and they actually turned it into a money laundering case by saying that the foreign agent violations turn the transactions criminal, which means if you started to move the money around, you could be prosecuted for money laundering. Money laundering is a big deal. It's got uh, you know very heavy penalties in federal law. So the curiosity was whether that seemed to be the way they were headed in the Hunter case or not. And I bring that up because last week, very quietly, uh, the Justice Department announced that they had dropped the investigation against Blue Star Strategies, which is the Democratic consulting firm that Hunter brought in to lobby the Obama administration on behalf of the Ukrainian company Burisma that was uh, paying him so handsomely. So what happened with that was the, the Justice Department quietly had them come in and post facto register as a foreign agent, which means they were in violation of the law because they should have done that before and they didn't. So what the DOJ let them do was do it post facto. And then a few days later, they quietly dropped the criminal case. So I'd keep my eyes open to see what they're doing in Delaware with Hunter, because I've always thought what would happen here is when they thought no one was looking, maybe they would take a minor tax plea from him or even a civil settlement of the tax case and make the whole rest of the investigation go away. And I'm still not convinced that won't happen. Uh, there's got so many layers to it. I feel like the media is kind of glazing over on this, too. It's not it reminds me of the early second term of Bill Clinton. You know, the Chinese fundraising scandal, a lot of different tentacles, too complicated. It's hard to put that into a headline. Intern scandal? Yeah, we can run with that one. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I remember uh, Bill Buckley, I think it was uh, back in the Clinton days, pointing out that, you know, Nixon's big problem was that he only did he did one thing wrong and he gave everybody time to sort of dig their mitts into it. Whereas the thing with Clinton was if you got stuck on the scandal from Monday, by Wednesday, we were three scandals down the road from the Monday <laughs> scandal. So he he piled them up so fast, nobody could wrap their brain around one until you had the next one. Um, and maybe that's the maybe that's the trick. You just got to keep the uh, keep the party rolling along. Let's move on to our great sponsor for the day. You'll hear about him a couple of times today. Three Martini Lunch brought to you today by NetChoice. As Americans, innovation has always been what makes us different. America's tech industry outpaces the world. We have the most innovative companies that power our economy and way of life. And the reason for that, free market innovation. But some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators, attacking our own in the name of competition, while our true competitors like Europe and China close the gap. But NetChoice believes congressional representatives, and especially conservatives, must stand for American innovation, not big government, by rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. Specifically, they encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Andy, on to our next discussion here. And of course, in the wake of an uh, absolutely horrific event like the elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, or uh, the grocery store shooting in, in Buffalo not long ago, sadly, uh, the question becomes what to do about it? How can we stop this? And of course, uh, you got the liberals uh, pushing uh, gun control. 
conservatives, of course, wanting to uh, strengthen the security at schools. And uh, one that you're looking at, and National Review uh, apparently is too, is this issue of red flag laws. On the one hand, it's understandable that people would say we need to have a tool to get deadly weapons out of the hands of people who are so severely mentally unstable that we feel that they could be someone who could perpetrate this. We have, there's got to be a way to intervene uh, without shredding people's Second Amendment rights. So you would need to go to a, a court and get due process and have witnesses and have a judge's ruling and have a limited time uh, for this to be in effect. And then you reevaluate and so forth. Other people say, of course, you know, it's a slippery slope against the Second Amendment. It's not to be infringed. And this could be a tool for you know, vendettas, uh, ex-spouse or a neighbor they don't like or something like that. And some fear there may be judges who are severely anti-gun. And so regardless of how significant the evidence is, they might be inclined to uh, restrict uh, firearm access to as many people as they can. So uh, how are you uh, approaching this? And uh, from laws that exist, what might work, what definitely doesn't work and so forth? Well, Greg, I think um, I should start by saying I'd be remiss here on the, the three martini lunch not to point out to people that if you want to know what happened uh, in Uvalde, you can't do better than Jim Garrity's morning jolt at National Review today, where Jim really does a great job, as he always does with this kind of a story in particular of, of uh, you know, hashing through what's real, uh, what's not, what's important, um, and what people are trying to make important that may not be. So I, I couldn't recommend more that people uh, check that out. Um, you know, I think red flag laws are the things that um, uh, that come up every time we have a situation like this, Greg. And, uh, you know, the slippery slope argument is one. And maybe this is just because I'm a I've come from the law more than from journalism. But I don't really buy the slippery slope argument because all constitutional rights are subject limitation. We don't have any absolute rights in the system. And none of our rights exist in a vacuum. Our rights all exist with other rights and other people's rights. And they compete, which is me, which is why we have to make accommodations. And, you know, liberty is about as fundamental a right as we have. Uh, but as we know, liberty is subject to pretty severe restrictions. And nobody says that, you know, when we when we started to prosecute people for murder, nobody said, well, you know, that's a slippery slope. The next thing they'll be talking bank robbery. You know, um, we have, you know, criminal laws and they require the uh, the government to come into court and satisfy a high burden of proof. But if you satisfy the high burden of proof, you can take somebody's liberty away. And I think with respect to the Second Amendment, it, too, is not an absolute right. Uh, and it has and is subject to uh, pretty significant restrictions. I think those restrictions ought to be done on a state by state basis. I'm all for uh, exploring red flag laws, but I think we need red flag federalism. We need like all the states uh, to wrestle with the conditions that obtain locally uh, and make the best regulatory decisions that they can make. I think we talked about this a little yesterday, Greg. Culturally, the country is not in one place on guns. And I think I mentioned when I was in New York, New York wasn't in one place on guns. You know, the, the attitudes about people in New York City about firearms are very different from uh, the attitudes of people in upstate New York. So this is not a one size fits all. 
situation. It's a serious situation. Um, and the states ought to be encouraged to explore. I think we mentioned in the National Review editorial today, Florida, which has had some success with their red flag system. I think I read someplace that it had been invoked about 6,000 times uh, since it's been on the books. And what it is, is basically a, uh, a judicial formula where you know you have a variety of due process rights and as you suggested uh, in your initial comments on this what you, you know people can't just like take people's guns away you have to satisfy a quantum of evidence uh, in court uh, and there are a variety of protections that people get when they're subjected to these proceedings and i think that that's sensible and it ought to be something that uh, that each each state explores based on the conditions that obtain in that state what I think we shouldn't have and what we should resist is one size fits all prescriptions from the federal government because we don't have a one size fits all country, number one. And number two, to repeat something I think is, is very important, particularly when you're talking about federal regulation, um, the Democratic administration, and I don't mean to be political about this, but it's simply a fact they use the legal system punitively against their political enemies. And that's just a fact. And it's the, I think the biggest problem that people have with the legal system is that it's a two-tiered system of justice. And they can easily detect that people with one set of political attitudes get treated one way and people with a more preferred set of political attitudes for from the progressive standpoint um, get slaps on the wrist, or if if that, they get treated in a much different way. And I think the elephant in the room when you're trying to regulate anything this serious is the fact that people do not trust the federal government and particularly the Justice Department to implement regulatory systems fairly. They see them implementing them in a way that's punitive and political. And as long as that's the case, as long as your reputation is for politicizing the law enforcement system and the legal system, I think it's it's going to be very difficult to get people to buy into a new regulatory system. Uh, just a quick reminder, once again, that we are brought to you today by NetChoice. Uh, remember that some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators, attacking our own in the name of competition, while our true competitors like Europe and China close the gap. NetChoice believes congressional conservatives must stand for American innovation, not big government, by rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. They encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org 2992. This message brought to you again by NetChoice. Andy, on to our final martini now, and uh, it's basically the polar opposite of what we just talked about. And that's, you know, letting the states decide these things. And obviously there are very strong positions on the, on the second amendment and rightly so it's uh, as many people say, it's the amendment that protects the first amendment in a lot of different ways. So we, we certainly want to uh, preserve that, but what the Democrats do in these situations, uh, whether it's a horrific tragedy like this or the controversy over the election, uh, they come up with their, really radical, one-size, supposedly-fits-all approach to this, and anything less than that means you don't care about 
A, saving lives, B, protecting and preserving democracy, whatever it is. So they've got their legislation and anything other than that uh, is ignoring the issue or uh, ignoring what really needs to be done. So their all or nothing approach obviously is something we would rather be nothing because their legislation just gives the government more power, restricts rights and so forth. But in the meantime, more common sense ideas, whether it's securing schools in this situation or the, uh, I know there are, there's efforts underway to uh, preserve and, and update how the electoral vote count is done, which would be a much more minor step than what they want to do with federalizing elections and so forth. All of that stuff just gets uh, ignored. So uh, nothing changes unless you go full radical. Yeah. And you wonder, Greg, how often do they get to run this play? You know, it's the same thing every time. So now the gun exhibition is, exhibitionism is that they won't do anything other than guns. You know, that's we're now life is supposed to stop while they uh, dither about how they're going to legislate about guns, even though they don't really have a plan and they don't have a plan that that, you know, let's let's face it. Um Nothing has stopped the Democrats while Biden has been president from moving gun legislation, except the fact that what they want to do is not popular. And as a result, they can't get enough support behind it. So, you know, they do this every time they act like the sky is falling. Uh, They exploit politically every single tragedy. It's not surprising that they're the party of Beto O'Rourke. And. I think people get tired of it. You know, we just had an election in Georgia uh, last week, a primary election where the turnout was like a record turnout. And that was like with still ringing in our ears, their claims that the the election law that they enacted down in Georgia was Jim Crow, you know, 2.0. I actually forget which point oh they're up to on Jim Crow, Greg, because they've used it so Jim many Eagle. times. It's Jim Eagle. Jim Eagle. That's right. I forgot about that. Right. Jim, Jim. Uh, Ay, ay, ay. Um, Jim Emu. Um, so, I, you know, I, I just think people get tired of the play acting because that's that's all it is. And it's really unseemly at a moment of tragedy in the wake of an atrocity when you have serious people who are trying to grapple with something that's not easy to do. You know, we're talking about a fundamental right of self-defense uh, and we're talking about Uh, gun rights that are responsibly used by 99 plus percent of law-abiding people. Uh, And we're talking about in a country of 330 million uh, trying to stop these seemingly random type attacks that happen every now and again, and that are very hard to predict. You know, after the fact, it's always easy to look back and say, well, you know, this guy showed all the signs of being a bad guy. But there's a lot of people who show the signs of being a bad guy and then don't go off like the atom bomb, you know. Um, So uh, this is very hard stuff. Uh, And I think the last thing it needs is political exhibitionism. So naturally, that's the first thing that we get. No, that's exactly right. And I think the uh, most glaring example of that was in the wake of uh, the George Floyd incident and uh, the riots that, you know, caused billions upon billions of dollars in damage to metropolitan areas all around the country was when Tim Scott came up with his police reform bill. And what did the Democrats do? They filibustered it, called it a token gesture by the Republicans because it didn't do what they wanted to do. Did they engage? Did they debate? Did they try to put forth amendments? No, they just trashed it and they want it as a campaign issue in 2020. That's how they roll. Yeah. And I just don't know that it's, uh, you know, there's a reason 
why all the polls suggest that they're about to crash and burn. And my sense of it is that, you know, people are not only tired of it as a soundtrack to our lives. Um, when they tell you the things they tell you, and then you pull up to the gas station and you're having to pen, pay $6 a gallon for gas, uh, and you go into the grocery stores and your, you know, your grocery bill has, uh, has, has just gone exorbitantly high compared to what it was just a short time ago. Um, this is no longer an abstraction to people and it's no longer just a soundtrack of life. This is like, this is how people live. Um, and I think when you get to a point like we're at now, where people were really feeling in a real life way, what the wages of these policies are, um, you can tell why there's such frustration uh, at the irresponsible behavior that we get out of Washington every time something like this happens. Yeah, that's the same story each time. And it's one of the main reasons why uh, good ideas uh, go to Capitol Hill to die uh, a lot of the time. But uh, Andy, great to have you with us uh, in Jim's stead. Have a, a good weekend. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you down the road. Take care. Thanks, Greg. Happy holiday weekend to everyone. Andy McCarthy, a former federal prosecutor, contributing editor at National Review Online, uh, also a Fox News contributor. He's the author of Ball of Collusion. If you haven't read that one yet, please uh, do so. It's a great look at uh, how the whole Russia uh, collusion fiasco unfolded. Jim and I will be here on Monday in a special Memorial Day episode that we've actually already done, but it'll be released on Monday. And then he and I will be here for our usual uh, fun on Tuesday. So uh, do enjoy Memorial Day weekend. Do take the time on Monday, though, to uh, remember and reflect and honor those who have given the full sacrifice for our nation and honor their families, of course, as well. Uh, do subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already and tell a friend about us as well. We're very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us all on Twitter. Andy is at Andrew C. McCarthy. Jim is at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a good weekend and please join us again on Monday and Tuesday for the next editions of the Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. Economies would collapse, or you say, in, in any event, the upside of fossil fuels, cheap, portable, abundant, far outweighs the negatives of climate change. Economies would collapse without them. And for emerging nations, affordable fossil fuel remains a, prere a prerequisite for lifting billions of people out of poverty. And yet here's the president of the United States celebrating the, quote, transition away from affordable energy in the middle of an economic shock. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.